You're listening to Better Fishing with Two Bald Biologists, sponsored by the North Carolina Wildlife Resources Commission. I'm Corey Oakley, the Assistant Chief of Fisheries Management for the Inland Fisheries Division. And I'm Ben Ricks, Coastal Region Fisheries Supervisor. We are fisheries biologists who are avid anglers. We want to link the work we do as biologists to your fishing. Our goal in this podcast is to use the information we have as an agency to help you catch more fish and learn about our state's great aquatic natural resources. Okay. Thanks, guys. Really appreciate y'all tuning in. Just a quick shout out to everybody who's been emailing us good questions and telling us how much they enjoy the podcast. It's really kind of kind of humbling that you guys are enjoying this so much because it's a lot of fun for us as well. Right, Corey? It is. It's absolutely a lot of fun. We're having a blast and I'm learning a lot of things as we talk to different people about different fish and it's been really, really good and the response from the public's been awesome. Right. Yeah. We were just at the expo in Raleigh. Talk to a lot of good folks there. We'll be at a few other ones in the near future. So if you're at a fishing expo, keep an eye out for us. We may be there. So, But today, we're going to talk about a fish that's pretty alien to me. Yeah, it's a strange fish to me, too. I mean, I know a little bit about it, but I don't, I really know nothing about it, truth be told. Right. So being an Eastern boy, a lot of these northern and mountainous fish are kind of just an enigma to me. I hear about them, I read about them, I see pictures, and I'm like, man, that'd be cool. But of those, probably one of the ones that I've always thought is the coolest is the muskie. And a lot of people don't even know that we have muskie here. I am not qualified to talk about muskie. Neither am I. So we invited a couple people today. We got Tim Boyer, who is uh, president of the Muskie Club. He also is a maker of very amazing muskie baits. Say hey, Tim. Hey, how's it going, everybody? There he is. And we also have Scott Loftus, who is a warm water. Scott, tell me your title so I don't buck it up. Yeah, warm water and habitat coordinator for the mountain region. Right. And Scott's been doing a lot of uh, research projects on muskie and muskie habitat. And so we invited him today. So while I'm the novice on muskies, we've got two professionals in the room that are that are going to help us understand muskie. And with Corey, we actually went muskie fishing yesterday. We did. Yeah. It was quite the experience. It was, for sure. When you envision mountain fishing, it's not really normal mountain fishing. No, no, it's not what you would think for sure. And it it was good. I mean, I had a great time. Learned a lot about the fish. I was on the boat with Tim and uh, learned a lot about the fish and about the habitats that they're in and the baits that you use. And the baits are super cool, by the way, in case you don't know what musky baits look like. They're really cool looking baits. Well, before we even get into the fishing, oh, yeah. Yeah. we got two emails, one from Scott and one from Tim. and it was nothing but like <laughs> warnings, you know, about the conditions that we would be in. So I'm going to put it off on them. What do you have to be prepared for if you're going to go musky fishing? Defeat. <laughs> well, <laughs> wow. Yeah. Well, that's a way to set it off right there. Yeah. <laughs> I love it. Even success or catching or not catching, they didn't even cover that initially. What did you initially say to us, Scott? Bring a life jacket. Bring a life jacket. That was number life one. Life jacket, change of clothes. Change of clothes, dry bag, and be prepared to go overboard. Right. I mean, that's how they <laughs> led into this. Okay. So you want to catch a muskie, we probably will turn the boat over. You know, yeah. that's where we started with. Yeah. It was yeah a little exciting, to say the least. Yeah, we affectionately refer to the upper French broad as the jungle, and it's aptly named. A lot of woody debris. Tight jams that you got to snake through with the boat. And if corner of the boat or something catches one of that and it stops the boat abruptly, you can go over easily. Yeah. After doing it, I could tell why you said that. I mean, sure. none of us went in the drink yesterday, which was the positive because the water temperature was probably like upper 30s. I was going to say 38. Very cold. And that was a guess. Yeah, it was cold yesterday. So... You definitely want to be safe when you're doing it, but I see where you get that from. There's woody debris everywhere. There's stuff that you get hit, and things happen quickly on the water. So our take-home there is if you're going musky fishing or fishing in general, always be safe. Sure. No, but it was interesting. It's like, so you want to catch a musky. We know it's hard. We didn't realize going into it that it was also like hazardous to yeah. our health. Yeah. Yeah. We just thought we were going to maybe catch a fish that's very difficult to catch. We didn't know that we could potentially go in to drink, but anyway. We didn't, so that's good. So, Scott, tell us, I mean, a lot of our listeners 
have never heard about a muskie or think that a muskie is something that you catch up near Canada. Tell us about muskie in North Carolina and what they're all about. So muskie are native to North Carolina, to the western part of the state and the interior drainages of western North Carolina, interior drainages being the French Broad, the Hiawassee, and the Tennessee, all draining towards the Mississippi and the Gulf. That's what interior basin drainage refers to is anything. It doesn't go to the ocean. Well, it goes to the ocean, but it doesn't go to the Atlantic Ocean. It doesn't go to the Atlantic Ocean. Yeah, that's right. It's going the other way. The Atlantic drainages, kind of the eastern part of the state and the western tip, most of those major basins are uh, interior draining to the Gulf. And that Mississippi drainage is what the muskie's native to. Had native muskie in the French Broad, particularly up until uh, the late 1900s and uh, land use and other activities, the population was almost extinct and the Wildlife Commission has been stocking the upper French Broad to provide that fishery since 1970. That's just a little background on the fish. And they're in the pike family, right? They're in with chain pickerel, northern pike. They're kind of in that group of fish. Asasidae is the family and they're in with the pikes and northern pike, chain pickerel, pike family. That's correct. The long, toothy creatures, right? Very long and very toothy. I could tell a story about myself in my early years of sampling fish on the French Broad. The Wildlife Commission does survey that population. We will do it for four or five years on, get a, a good snapshot of the muskie population in the French Broad, and then we, we may take five years off or so and sample again. But we are stocking out on the French Broad annually because of reproductive bottleneck out there. Wait a minute. You just said that you could tell a story about your early days with the Wildlife Commission, and we're on a podcast to tell a story, so let's hear the story about you and the muskie. toothy and story. Toothy and story. I think I might know where this is going, but let's see where it does go. Toothy and story. Well, so yeah, we're out on the river sampling full commission staff personnel, including the chief of inland fisheries at the time. And media person from Charlotte was with us. And sampling for muskie is much like fishing for muskie. It's not a guarantee that you're going to see one or get them in the boat. They're very elusive torpedoes when they sense or tickled by the electricity. So it was about lunchtime, and we had not boated a fish yet. So, you know, I started kind of getting nervous that we were going to be able to get a fish in the boat for the chief and for the media. We did. And the fish was not wanting to cooperate when we had it in the boat. So the long and short of the story is I made the comment of you hold it like this and went to put my hand down on it. And at that time, the fish flopped, moved its head and its tooth caught my thumb and to the extent of about six stitches in the mm. in the mm. finger there in front of the chief. That was a proud moment in the career of a fish biologist there. Hey, stuff happens. You just have to deal with it, right? That's it. So that's my war story. So we're calling a muskie. What's the full name? The full common name is muskellunge. Yeah, what's the scientific name? We'll nerd out on this thing. Come on. Yeah, give me a second on that one. I'm I'm tongue tied. <laughs> that's <laughs> it's a pretty right. long name. Well while you think about that, let's talk to Tim for a minute. So we hadn't heard much from Tim. Tim, introduce yourself. Tell us what you're all about kind of your role in the muskie club, but also why muskie? Like there's any number of fish that you could dedicate yourself to in this area, but why did you choose muskie? Well, I've always been a fisherman. Fished with my mom when I was young. She loved fishing. After I got a driver's license, I most guys went doing other things. I went fishing. Fast forward quite a few years, spent several years in the Marine Corps, got stationed down at Camp Lejeune for a while, and I got really accustomed to saltwater fishing. I know you do a lot of saltwater fishing down there. And upon moving back, it can taken some of the some of the lure out of trout fishing. And I'd still dabbled with smallmouth quite a bit, but not as much as I used to. It was probably seven, eight years ago, a friend of mine, Matthew Christie, got into seriously addicted to this musky thing. And it was something I had always looked at and dabbled in, but when you start throwing musky lures from a canoe and pulling the canoe halfway across the river, it just never clicked with me a whole lot. I didn't get that into it. But we started fishing quite a bit together, and then I joined the musky club, and I get to fish and hear from a lot of very experienced musky anglers in the area. 
And after quite a bit of trials and tribulations, I caught my first one. And to see that fish come out of nowhere and just totally destroy the bait and ruin the peace and quiet of a super cold February evening was just excellent. I mean, hooked from that moment. And I've probably spent at least one or two days a week since then fishing for these fish. No, I think that's great. So I think it's neat. There's a lot of different fishing clubs around, and it sounds like the Muskie Club is really, you know, you guys work together, you talk to each other, you share information. And so if you're new to a sport, kind of like you were several years ago, joining a club, a fishing club, is a great way to kind of kind of network and benefit off of the knowledge of other anglers and that kind of thing, too. And I think that's what you guys try to do in the club, right? Right. I mean, going off on your own, you know, in today's time of the internet, there is a lot of online information that you can learn from. Sure. But to go to a group of guys that has contained people like, you know, Derek Argotti, Donald Fundera. Donald Fundera started this club back in 1981. Glenn Grindstaff, Denver McClure. I have really learned a lot of information from these people. And not just, you know, the what to use and and where to use it and where to go, but kind of more how to think. Mm. And I think that how to think is probably some of the best information you're going to get. And it sounds kind of silly because no, when you go no, fishing, you're just chunking baits, put them in the right spot, and you catch fish, right? No. I wish. No, because I think, not that I was putting them in the right spots. You can tell no. the, you can tell the whole group that how bad <laughs> I was at it yesterday. But You were just fine. But like yesterday when we were on the river, you were like, this is a great spot, seeing a bunch of fish here. You know, we put them in the right spots, and they just didn't cooperate yesterday. I mean, and that's fishing, and that's musky fishing for sure. So you have the Muskie Club. What's the official, like if people wanted to learn more about your club, how could they do that? What's the official title of the club? All that good jazz so people out there can. So the club is the Western North Carolina Muskie Club. The best place to get information is via Facebook. And I know everybody doesn't have Facebook. You can probably look me up and shoot me a message somewhere or another, or you can use wnc.muskie, that's with an I-E, not a Y, at gmail.com. Yeah. Shoot me an email through there, and we really promote using the right gear and safe tactics, just like, you know, it's January. We went fishing. We definitely want you to go out there with a dry bag. Yeah. It can be a horribly long ride in freezing weather when you're soaking wet with river water. <laughs> yeah, I thought that, you know, after we drove 45 minutes up the river, I was like, if we fall in now, it's going to be terrible going back. It's really very suggested that you take a drive bag. <laughs> yeah. So, yeah, Corey was with Tim, and I was with Scott. And how many logs did y'all hit on the way up? We didn't hit that many. I mean... That many. That many. Yeah. How many is that many? I need to know this. I mean, we hit maybe one or two, but we didn't hit them hard. We had a couple of what I call a soft bump, and that, that almost don't even count. Yeah. As, that, long, as long as you don't have a yeah. wide open direct hit, you're good to go. You know, it was a hiccup in the motor. We didn't smack it. Like Rubin's Racing? Kind yeah, of like Rubin's Racing. That's right. Yeah. Did it raise the lower unit up? No. No. So we, about, what, 10 minutes into my day, we hit something square. Mm. And Scott looks at me and goes, Ben, we might be done for the day. And I was like, okay. <laughs> well, this was exciting. So <laughs> let's go home. So, yeah. We actually got a bunch of stuff wrapped up around the prop that we had to pull off. And then... We kept on going. Luckily, we it wasn't the day ender that Scott was worried it was. But yeah, so it's it's not, if you get keyed up, if you're not taking your blood pressure medicine, luckily I took mine that morning. Yeah. Let's go ahead and throw this out there. The French Broad is not the place for bass boats. It's no. not the place for fiberglass boats. No, we were in, what, 14 foot? 14 foot John yeah. boat is probably big enough, but not so big. Because a bigger boat gets really hard to manage out there because... It's tight. It's full of wood. Yeah. You're going to have to go through log jams at some point or another. Jet boats are ideal. Yeah. You have a good tunnel hull jet like some of the guys have. Very few, but some of them do. And, man, you ride up the river then, you can wide open. You can do whatever you want. Yeah, you ain't got to worry about it. Okay, so we've driven the point home, and we'll probably drive it home a couple more times, that this is a used caution yeah. on the French Broad. It's what you said a minute ago. If you really want to get into this, get connected with people that do it all the time. Mm -hmm. You know, don't try to do this on your own. Right. But let's talk a little bit for a minute about like, because what was one of the most amazing things was throwing these baits all day long. Oh, my gracious. Like, yeah. 
I fish a lot of saltwater in my spare time. I fish a lot for stripers in my spare time. I fish for large apex predators quite regularly. And I have never in my life thrown baits that are the size of the baits that we threw yesterday. No, these things are like two pounds a piece. Right. I mean, I mean, I don't know how heavy they were, but they felt like at the end of the day, they were feeling like they were two pounds a piece. So most of them are in the area to three quarter ounces to half a pound. See, I was wrong. Okay. Now we do have guys that throw pounders and there are people up north throwing two pounders. That's probably not what you need down here. The average bait is somewhere between three quarter and three ounces. Okay. Average jerk baits, spinner baits, stuff like that. And these baits are 15, 16 inches long. Yeah. Right. Some of the bigger glide baits are going to be more half a pound or a pound. The one I was throwing yesterday was, was a quite heavy bait. So there are a lot of gear requirements and heavy rods and eight to nine foot lengths. My two favorite rods right now are eight foot six and nine foot are required. We all typically use 85 pound braid. It's not just for the fish, but for making sure you don't lose these lures. We do get hung a lot. The river's full of wood. You're trying to fish down in the structure. And when you're getting in the structure, you're going to get hung. So we also suggest that people carry a lure retriever. That's usually a curly tail on the end of a long stick that you can go down and you just knock the lure right off the stick and it'll come back out. Some of the musky lures are quite expensive. You guys seen a lot of the bait maker, what we call basement maker baits. And those can run anywhere from 50, 60 bucks on up to 100 or a lot more if you got the money that you want to spend on it. Yes, that's hard to imagine. And we did it yesterday, but it's hard to imagine throwing baits that are that expensive. And you're right. If you're throwing baits that are that expensive or really big fish, you might as well up your gear so that you make sure you can keep those baits and catch the big fish. All right. That 85-pound braid seems excessive, but with the wear and tear that you have out there and the time that you're going to spend putting in your 10,000 cast, there's nothing wrong with it. Right. No. And I don't know if we've fully talked about it yet. Scott, how big do these fish get? Max size in our area, Western North Carolina, 52, 54 inches is probably the max. We see that largely in our reservoirs. Adger is a good example because that's where our current state record is from. It's a 52, 52 and a half inch fish and 41 pounds and eight ounces. So it's a massive, massive animal. Yeah, it's a big fish. I've seen a few of them live. They're pretty stout animals for king sure. King of the mountain. They are king of the mountain for sure in the fish world. King of the mountain. We mentioned the toothiness, razor sharp teeth, yep. Yep. big mouth, apex predator. Yeah, they're really just a beautiful fish. I mean, their coloration's pretty. They're long and large. And I see why people want to go try to catch one because they're really pretty. Yeah, I can definitely. I mean, you're fishing relatively clear water. Yep. You're throwing it deeper holes. And then all of a sudden, out of nowhere, here a he shadow comes. appears behind your bait that's four foot long. Yeah. I mean, where's there not a draw for that? Yeah. You know, I could definitely see that. That gets your heart going. Yeah. So it'd be like a big, massive book walks out and you got to shoot it. You know, it's like your heart starts beating pretty fast. Yeah. I mean, if it don't get you excited, what do you do it? You shouldn't be fishing. Right. If you think it's boring, there's just the wrong sport for you. Yeah. That's right. right. That's right. So I have a quick question. We talked a little bit about what the muskie is and all that. And we talked about that it's in the interior basin for the most part of North Carolina. Scott, can you tell us some like locations? Because they're not found throughout the mountains of North Carolina. They're found in certain locations. Can you give our anglers that maybe want to go try this? Like we're talking about French Broad River because we fished on it, but what are some other places in the state that these guys occur? Absolutely. So Essox, Moscanangi. Ah, there it is. Scientific name. There's the scientific name. You pulled the rabbit out of the hat. I like big it. Big name for a big fish. Yeah. So currently, we'll start with just where we're stocking the fish. It, John's River, excited to bring on a new location. It's the first new muskie stocking location the commission has brought on in decades. Well, that's not true. We did a, a short-term stocking on Chioa Reservoir, impoundment on the Little Tennessee side below Fontana in, I think, from 2013 to 2015. So there's a holdover population on Chioa. We're no longer stocking Chioa Reservoir. Johns River, I mentioned, we just brought it on this past October. 
2022 was the first stocking on the Johns River. So excited to add that to muskie angling opportunities to the repertoire. It's in District 8, our Wildlife Commission District 8. Johns River is a tributary to Lake Rodhis on the Catawba chain. So that's different in the fact that it's a, an Atlantic Slope. Yeah. Atlantic Slope in a basin. The Nola Chucky, also in District 8, but drains to the French Broad. We've stocked it annually. That's the two uh, District 8 water bodies that we're currently stocking. District 9, Lake Adger, we mentioned it, state record. It's come from down there a couple, three times now. So known for growing large muskie. We've talked about the French Broad River quite a bit to this point. We also have angling opportunities for muskie on Hiawassee, Montana, two large reservoirs, western end of the state, and then Lake James. The head impoundment on the Catawba has a self-sustaining, low-density population of muskie that anglers can fish for there. So all told, that's uh, six or seven water bodies that you know offer angling opportunities for muskie all in the western part of North Carolina. Yeah, I mean, the take-home is they're not everywhere in the western part of the state, but they're in several different locations that you could potentially go and fish for them. Yeah, you don't need to all go to one spot. Don't need to all go to one spot. That's right. So one thing I talked with Scott a lot about the stocking projects yesterday as we were fishing, and we're stocking in relatively low densities, but densities that we think scientifically are appropriate for each system. Right, Scott? And so they're not, and we were talking to our Piedmont supervisor earlier, we're not stocking in densities that are going to, I mean, these are apex predator fish. And these, we're not stocking in numbers that are wiping out other fish populations or anything like that. Scott, you want to talk a little bit about that from a biological standpoint? Yeah, from a stocking numbers, biological standpoint, the commission's only stocking 1,500 a year. So 1,500 muskie per year, compare that to our trout program where we're stocking over a million trout per year. So what's that less than a percent probably well there are different goals in mind there too with the programs you know we won't go down the trout road but right absolutely just from a comparison of numbers though to give you an idea of how few muskie we are stocking from our survey work we know that they live like french broad for example 15 16 years old so it's a fairly long-lived animal out there in the landscape and the numbers that we're stocking in the french broad about 80% of those do not survive the initial year once they're stocked. So about 20% of that population is driven by annually by the number that we stock. Only about 25% of, I think, in the total French broad stocking is about 850 fish. So 20% of those live. We do that annually and produce a pretty continuous fishery for anglers in the French broad lakes. Uh, Adger, we're stocking just under 300 fish annually. Relatively low densities, but for the nature of this fish, it's appropriate. Absolutely. We mark and tag our fish, and we know that the fish that are there on the landscape and in these resources, the fisheries, whether it be the river or the lakes, that we go back and survey them, find those fish. They have our tag, and we know that without our stocking programs, they would not be on the landscape or be in such low densities that it it would be even smaller needle in a bigger haystack for anglers to find. Gotcha. Let's switch gears and talk fishing for a minute. That's, I mean, that's yeah, what we're here to we're do, We're kind of right? going back and forth. Let's that's, talk about biology. Let's talk about fishing. Let's talk about biology again to kind of mix it up. Yeah. Tim, how you make them bite? These fish don't want to bite. Doesn't seem like it. So what's in your mind? Tell me your plan of attack in a given day. Different guys go about it in different ways. My main strategy is to cover water and look for that fish that's active. And we got a lot of questions about guys using live bait. You know, live bait can be very productive for certain fish species. And you can catch muskies on live bait. But you're not covering much water using a live bait. True. Whereas the main way that we run our boats down to the river is to drag a section of chain. Back in the day, they used to use the old window weights. A chain works a little better. doesn't catch on the log so bad. So I've got two sections of three-eighths chain behind the boat that kind of keep the boat pointed up river, keep us moving at not as fast as the water, but slows us down enough to get good cast down along the bank. And for the most part, I'm picking two or three baits. I've had two or three rods sitting there, and I will keep trying a couple of different baits, but 
usually I've got my focus on what I think is going to work. And you stay on that and you pretty much have to be persistent. And we spent the whole day yesterday, me and Corey never seen a fish all day long. But if you keep fishing and you keep fishing, eventually you're going to find that hungry fish that's going to attack your bait. This is definitely not fishing for the kind of people that want to go out there and catch a half dozen fish in a day because it's just not going to happen. So what are your baits mimicking most of the time? Wounded bait fish. Gotcha. Or not even necessarily wounded. Just, I mean, it's, it's got to be something alive. Mm-hmm. Some of the baits look quite alien, don't even look like fish. But it's got some kind of a triggering action that causes the fish to react. One of the things I was going to ask you, because you talked a lot about this yesterday on the boat, is you got the entire river right there in front of you. But what parts of the river, when you're fishing the, like the French Broad, What are you focused on? What is the habitat that you're really focused in on when you're trying to get these guys to come out and look at your bait? I'm going to say in most cases, you're looking at eddy water, the slack sides, the places with a lot of wood structure. Access to deep water is usually pretty critical, but you should not avoid the other areas of the river 100%. I mean, sometimes they're going to be in that shallow spot. Sometimes they may be sitting in a sandbar down on the side. So take your time and cover all the water. I think a lot of us make a lot of mistakes and we have our ideas where we see and catch most of our fish, but we skip a lot of water that potentially holds that fish. And that's going to vary, like all fishing, right? That's going to vary depending on the water conditions, the time of year that you're fishing, the yep. what's going on around you. Like you were talking yesterday, there's certain times of the year, it's like the first three feet and the last three feet of your cast are the important six feet of that cast. Yeah, very much so. Yeah, and the in-between is not as important. So you learn that as you go. I know you didn't know that right to start with as you were first started musky fishing. You've picked that up as you've fished. No, you know, and there's a lot of different seasonal considerations for, to make a really, I mean, these conversations have holes all in them. Sure. But for the most part, when we're talking about summertime, warmer water conditions, you're going to be fishing a bait a lot faster. Always no, but most of the time you're going to be fishing in faster conditions. The bait sizes may still vary. You can use big stuff during the summer. You can use little stuff during the summer. During the winter time, typically, you're going to slow down. Okay, the fish are going to be colder. They're going to be slower. When you look at the river life within the French Broad during the summertime, there is minnow life, small fish life, smallmouth. You see fish everywhere. During the winter time. Did you see one fish yesterday? I did not see a fish yesterday, and the water's clear. Right. So there are suckers everywhere, but they typically sit there in one place and don't move, so you don't always see them unless you're just right on top of the school. But during the wintertime, I feel like their food options are a little slimmer, so they tend to eat bigger stuff. And if they're going to make that action to move, then they're going to go after something bigger. It also seems like they don't much like care for the current during the colder water periods. So that's where we're talking about that first three feet during the winter, that first couple of feet off the bank. Once you hit that current seam, the fish typically will kind of go back down to the bottom and move back over into the eddy. It's just a, how active the fish are. So one thing that I noticed, and you know, I grew up fishing on the Roanoke River, and we made a lot of casts that were either perpendicular to the shoreline or upstream of the shoreline. And being a striper guy fishing the Roanoke River, throwing bucktails and that kind of thing, if you threw up current, it was like you took that bucktail and just threw it in the water. Or you might as well just take five bucks out of your wallet and throw it in the river. And it was kind of amazing to me because he was like, yep, we got to throw up current. I was like, my brain was like, this is wrong. Like, I can't do this or I'm going to lose it. And I guess the nature of the baits and where we were putting them, I mean, they were coming in and out of that structure just fine. but. That was one thing that I noticed yesterday is like, this is a little different, you know. The chain thing was cool. Like, it made me go, man, I should have probably put a chain on the front of my boat when I was drifting the Roanoke. So, and that's one thing I always tell folks, and it's always like, I mean, when you go fish with somebody and you do something completely different, there's some things that can be very beneficial, even if I never go musky fishing again, there may be something that I want to try on my waters that I learned from doing this. So it was very interesting. Yeah, my experience with Tim yesterday was, one, the chain thing, I don't know why it blew my mind, but it kind of blew my mind. I was like, oh, drag a chain and look at all the control Tim had with that boat. Oh, yeah. 
It was amazing how he could weave his way going downstream through the woody debris with a trolling motor and a chain. And he's like, well, I got to position the boat over here. And he just changed the trolling motor and the boat would completely shift across the river, you know, very slowly. I was pretty impressed by that for sure. I know it's the simple things, Tim. Uh, trust me, you know, for me anyway, it is. But one of the things I noticed was that a lot of the thing, even though there were things that we did yesterday that were different that I'd never done before, like throwing two pound baits, even though they're not two pounds, that's what they felt like. There's a lot of things we did yesterday that kind of transcends all fishing. You got to get it in the right habitat. You got to know the right pace. You know, the baits are mimicking and look a lot like baits that are much smaller, you know, that we use for all kinds of things, whether it be striped bass or even you down on the coast doing red drum fishing and all that kind of, they look, the patterns are not that much different, even though they're just, you know, exponentially much larger. <laughs> they're much larger. A than grade it. or two bigger, yes, to say the yes, least. they're a grade or two bigger. So I think that's the thing that I saw yesterday as well was that even though we're doing same things a little bit different, there's a lot of things that, like if I'm white bass fishing in the Eno, it looked a lot like that yesterday. And the baits I use for white bass fishing are a lot smaller. I mean, a lot smaller. <laughs> they're micro size compared to the things we were using, but they're mimicking. It's the flash and the movement and all that. I mean, the glide baits that you have, Tim, by the way, that you were fishing with yesterday. I mean, he was fishing with a glide bait yesterday that was absolutely gorgeous in the water. I was like, I don't know why a fish wouldn't hit that bait. It looked perfect, what it was trying to mimic. It was pretty cool. That's my buddy Denver's bait. Caught me my last two fish. It's a really cool, slow-sinking, long-gliding, and I've got a, a nice tail on it right now that just has enough kick to it to even when the bait's being still and gliding and not doing much it's got a lot of activity to yeah it. i mean the bait was just standing still in the water half the time and the tail was just slowly moving i was like man that's perfect i mean that looks exactly like a fish in the water it was really cool now over these last few years i've had a handful of baits that start to perform for me and i don't think it's always just that bait but the fact that you've learned how to use that bait it's usually in those moments you're sitting there watching your bait going, man, that thing's cool. It ought to get eaten. And it just wham, gets smashed. Tim, I said that all day yesterday. Well, <laughs> and this is another phenomenon of musky fishing is success is defined completely different. So, I mean, most times if you're not holding a fish up by its mouth and smiling in your Instagram picture, and don't do that with a musket. We already learned that that's how you get your hand cut off. But right. anyway. You will end up in the emergency right. room. Don't do that. But, you know, most of us would define that as success. But really, I mean, just seeing one is winning. And yesterday, Scott, to his credit, uh, he must be listening to Tim a lot because we did what he said. We made one move. And so that's part of the win on that is just getting to see one. Right, Scott? It is, and I do listen to the musky whisperer and all advice coming my way thus far as it's really helped me on the river, and I, I think that's a big credit to Tim and the guys in the Western Muskie Club. They're willing to share that that advice. I'm a lifelong angler, uh, live to fish, heart beats to fish every single day. And, you know, muskie fishing was just a little bit different. Wanted to try it. Tim, Tim got me in the game. And, yeah, lucky enough to see a fish yesterday. We moved it, followed the bait up to the boat, stayed on the bottom, and started to do a figure eight. And... Got about halfway through the eight, and the fish just kind of left and mentioned that to Tim, and immediately more advice of right now, this time of year, water temperature, those fish don't want to really come up in the water column in the eight, but you need to be jigging something. In other words, bouncing a bait in front of them off the bottom. Hard to do with a long minnow bait that I had on, but, you know, again, just good advice from those guys on how to catch fish out there. Yeah, and just so you know, Scott's a good fisherman, too. I didn't get the short straw by going with Scott no, yesterday. No. So, you know, you guys that know Scott, we've got many commission employees, fish biologists, that we're fish nerds, and we also, on the weekends, we fish, too, and Scott falls right into that category with the rest of us. My so, question is, did you see that fish? I didn't see the fish. No, I think he's making it up, but that's okay. He may have, you know, like, it's late in the day, I got to do something. Yeah. 
Yeah. So I was actually on the phone stretching my back out a little bit because yeah. standing in a 14-foot boat all day long just <laughs> yeah. a little bit. Yeah. I was using some muscles. It's a challenge. <laughs> that I hadn't used it's in a, a challenge minute. for two big guys like us, for sure. <laughs> yeah. So I was kind of stretching my back a little bit while I was on the phone. And all of a sudden, Scott gets real excited real quick. And I hung up on the guy and still didn't get to see the muskie. You should have stayed on the conversations, I was saying. I know. It was time to get back to fishing, clearly, you know. Well, what I learned yesterday, well, I learned a lot, but I learned that a 14-foot aluminum boat, once I get down in it, I have a very difficult time getting back up out of it. Mm. <laughs> so I might need to go to the gym. Yeah. But anyway, oh, well. Yeah. No, it's definitely, it's a lot like my very first boat. So mm -hmm. a lot of it was kind of nostalgic for me because my first boat was a very narrow, three-foot-wide boat that was... Not necessarily tippy, but you couldn't shift your weight very much in it. Yeah, it had to stand in the center. Yeah. So it was a lot of fun to that. And what else do we need to know about musky fishing, Tim? That 1448's the John boat that you kind of want. That That's right. 1436 is a little bit slippy. <laughs> That's good to know. <laughs> That's good to know. I think as a club, the one thing that we really try to help people with that we see beginning anglers of failing on is really and truly having the appropriate gear. It's not just the rod, the heavy line, a steel leader, or a fluorocarbon leader of a 100-pound test plus. Okay, don't go less than the 100. I personally use only solid steel leaders anymore. Just that way, I, I don't have any failures. The fish can't bite through the steel leader. Yeah, so explain why you're doing that. Explain why that is. These big fish, and you're throwing a big bait, but the great big ones can swallow a 10-inch bait. That mouth opens extremely, extremely large, and the, the leaders are around a foot or maybe just a little bit longer. Different leaders do affect different bait types differently, but for the most part, a steel leader will work fine on just about any bait. Some of the guys have different preferences for different baits, and that's kind of getting a little bit more on the higher end of things. But uh, going down that gear list, a quality musky net is a 100% requirement, especially during the summertime months. You've worked this hard to catch this fish to hook it. And just because you've hooked it don't mean you ain't caught it yet. You got to get it in the net. And if you don't have a net that is big enough to take a four-foot fish and lay that net down on the deck of your boat, that net should allow that fish to be completely submerged in the water so that it can still breathe. In hot water conditions, these fish are a lot more susceptible to dying, so we want to make sure that they stay in the water. And then we highly suggest you carry a set of release tools, which includes long nose pliers, and the most important one is hook cutters, okay? Some of us carry jaw spreaders. They're pretty cheap tools. They're like three or four bucks on the musky shop. And a set of gloves, really, for when you first start picking these fish up, and even a lot of long-time anglers still use a glove to pick up these fish because they will put you going to get in stitches if you're not careful. All right. And you said pick them up. You want to always pick them up horizontal, right? I highly suggest that people go to YouTube and search some of these musky handling videos. I mean, you go in and put musky handling. I mean, it's a great resource. There's a lot of videos out there that will show you how to pick these fish up safely to keep you safe and to keep the fish safe. As a general rule with just about any big fish, they have a hard time supporting their own weight if you hold them up head first. Yeah, especially such a super long fish. That is not a natural position for them if you think about what they are in the exactly. water. They don't get held up by their heads very often. So we usually... There's a way to put your hand under the gill plate without grabbing the actual gills, and you've got to get a firm grip on that. Then you can start lifting the fish out of the net when putting your hand under the belly to support the fish's weight and hold it up and get your vertical picture real taken real quick. Right. A lot of solo anglers will have uh, apps on their phone called a whistle cam. That is very, very helpful for getting your picture when you're by yourself. You can set your camera up, turn the app on, get your fish out of the net, and then you whistle at the camera, and it'll take a picture within three seconds. And oh, that wow. really limits... I didn't know that. I'm going to have to dig this up. Yeah. Trying to do the 10-second exposure, you can really... The timer thing never works. Well, you well, fumble. Well, I mean, it works. Yeah, you fumble it. Yeah, yeah, you fumble around, you fumble around, you get really horrible pictures of you getting your butt kicked by the fish, <laughs> and you're dragging the fish all over the boat, knocking all the slime off, and, you know, to take care of the fish, it's a lot better to be prepared for that when it happens. That's awesome. I'm about to look up this whistle thing. Whistle cam. Yeah, that's cool. So that is cool. That's great information. Thanks, Tim. That's another good tip. Whistle cam. Yeah. So one more thing I want to make sure we talk about is 
we've done a lot of habitat work, and I wanted Scott to have a chance to showcase that habitat work that we've done on the French Broads. Scott, tell us, one, why we need the habitat, why we need to stock, why we need the habitat enhancement projects, and what they're doing for us. Yeah, been super excited about recent habitat work that the Wildlife Commission's had the opportunity to be involved in and other with other conservation partners on the French Broad floodplain. So in terms of muskie, we mentioned muskie stocking and the Wildlife Commission stocking muskie uh, the last 50 years in the French Broad started in 1970. Big reason for that is limited recruitment for young muskie. And so what that means is the adult fish go through the reproductive behavior spawn, but the egg, fry, and particularly those two life stages, egg and fry stages, for uh, young muskie, survival was really, really uh, limited. We've done three studies, 80s, the 90s, and early 2000s. We're engaged in our fourth long-term study right now, but all those previous studies indicate that natural reproduction on the river was, was the bottleneck, and so we found habitat is the reason why they do not have the spawning habitat or nursery habitat requirements available on the river that they they did prior European settlement, say mid-1800s. I know that's going back a long ways and kind of hard to maybe fathom that big a change uh, occurring over that 100, 200-year period, but had a lot of wetlands and backwater areas associated with the floodplain and, and the river that we're lost to agriculture development, draining, just, just land use practices. So with our conservation partners, we're going back in and, and identifying properties to recreate some of these historic spawning areas. And, and we've been able to accomplish that. We've got uh, four or five acres of spawning habitat now restored on the French Broad. And uh, we mentioned tagging the muskie before. We're tagging those muskie and monitoring the use of these Sloughs or backwater areas, slackwater, uh, allows those fish to get in out of the current and spawn and refuge during refugia during high flow events. And of 80 fish that we, adult fish, we have tagged on the river, 15 of those have been monitored in the sloughs. So we're pretty excited about the, the real use of those habitat areas uh, for muskie on the French Broad. So it's, as soon as we turned water in into those restored areas, fish found them and as far away as 26 miles, in fact. So we'd tagged a fish in the river 26 miles from one of the habitat areas. And they do move around, and they, they found that backwater slough to their liking. And out of those 15, uh, many of those have been repeat visitors to the slough. So excited about the habitat work, excited about the future of additional floodplain restoration in the Upper French Broad. And, you know, just a big shout out to our conservation partners that assist us and uh, work with us in that endeavor of habitat restoration along the floodplain of the French Broad River. So, in short, Scott, basically what happened was, like in a lot of rivers, on the, the French Broad's no different. When Europeans first got here, we basically channelized the river, basically, and cut off the floodplain from the river. Is that a fair assessment of what happened? It is. A lot of the wetlands were ditched and channelized. We needed that land for crop and mm -hmm. animal production you know, development, housing, so on and so forth. That's easy living down in the floodplain compared to steep slope mountainsides back yep. in the day. That yep. was productive soils. You know, that's, that's where people lived. So, yeah, standing water, you know, knee deep was not desirable. So channelized, ditched and drained. And there's miles and miles of ditch channel. Uh, not only the French Broad, that's close to what we're talking about today, but all over yeah. the state of North Carolina and all over the nation, for that matter. Our our large rivers have been ditched and channelized and, and lost a lot of habitat diversity through those land use practices. So, And at the end of the day, it's critical to muskie, really and truly, in terms of their being able to survive and reproduce. That floodplain is critical. If they don't have that, they're not able to do that. Is that right? Absolutely correct. And that's not just true for muskie. Muskie in this situation is the warm and fuzzy, but all fish. Long and toothy. <laughs> long and toothy, warm and fuzzy, but all fish species need refugia from high flow flood events. So they need these backwater areas that are, that are slack, you know, 
I liken it to being on a conveyor belt. Yeah, I mean, what benefits the muskie benefits a host of other species. Some of them are game fish, some right. of them are non-game fish, but they're all part of the ecosystem. Right. So it, it definitely benefits the whole system to have these areas. Yeah, and that's the key there, being you hit on it. So it, these habitat restoration projects are ecosystem services and ecosystem enhancement projects that benefits the entire, whether it's plant, animal, it's a benefit across the board. Probably should be noted that those sloughs now are closed during the spring season. Yeah, so the Wildlife Commission, we hadn't touched on regulations, but regulations for muskie, uh, it's a 42-inch minimum, and it's one fish per day. We don't see a lot of harvest, uh, very, very little, in fact, of muskie, but we do have that 42-inch one fish per day regulation on them, by and large, a catch-and-release angling community and fishery out there. And, and as Tim just mentioned, we... Because the, the backwater sloughs were designed for spawning and rearing, the commission has a March 1st to May 30th closure on the three sloughs that have been established on the French Broad River. So that goes into effect uh, here in about a month and a half, March 1. No angling in the sloughs. Should be talked about a little bit that trophy size fish is considered 42 and above, but um, to most hardcore muskie guys, you got to cross that four-foot line before anybody would talk about really harvesting a fish to mount on the wall. It's usually a four-footer to a 50-incher or bigger. They start getting real good at 42 inches, but there's a lot of difference between a 42 and a 44. There's a whole lot of difference between a 44 and 46. Sure. They start getting wider, I imagine. Yeah, the girth gets bigger. The girth, the meanness, the ugliness, the beauty. I mean, they get prettier the bigger they get. <laughs> I've been arguing that fact for a while now. (laughs) The bigger you get, the prettier you are. (laughs) (laughs) I think we're on to something. We're we're not talking about biologist anglers here. Okay. (laughs) Okay. This has been great. I have one more thing. I know. I was about to ask, does anybody have one more thing? I got one more thing. We each have one more thing we want. So our day was great yesterday, and obviously we didn't see a fish. And the first reason is because Tim took me on the boat. I'm usually like the death nail. Ben will tell you this. I can be a bit of a, like if I'm fishing by myself, I do great. I go on somebody else's boat. I've been with Ben. It's been gangbusters, Corey. Come down here and let's go fishing. I go down there and I mean, it's just, it's like it's dead. It's the curse of Corey. I thought you were going to say it was the white squirrels. (laughs) But this is new. This is new. This is new to Ben and I. As we're going up the river yesterday, I, of course, it was my fault. I saw a white squirrel on a tree. Yeah, Tim wasn't looking for white squirrels. No, he had his head down because he didn't want to see any. <laughs> I was looking at the beauty of the French Broad River Basin and thought, oh, this is great. And I saw a white squirrel, which we don't have in the eastern part of the state. No, it's don't. a form of a gray squirrel. But anyway, here's this white squirrel. And I saw, oh, there's a white squirrel. I thought Tim was going to come unglued. I mean, Tim's like, oh, I can't even say what Tim said. But <laughs> I was like, he was fairly discouraged. He was discouraged. And, I, and we hadn't even started fishing yet. And I was like, Tim, what's going on? He's like, oh, the curse of the white squirrel. I was like, the curse of the white squirrel? So what I have learned is that the white squirrel potentially is like bananas on the boat. It's a bad omen. It's a bad omen. You don't bring bananas on my boat. You don't bring bananas on Ben's boat. No. Unless you want to be asked I mean, to leave the boat. Your life's in your own hands. Your life is on your, in your own hands. I'm not going to try to save you. In fact, I might throw you out if you're on my boat with a banana. There's apparently three bad fishing omens now. Yeah. Yes. There is... The white squirrel. The white squirrel. Which is new to me. But now that I know it, it's it. It's it. It's it. You know, you can't walk it back. No, can't. No. So there's the white squirrel, there's the bananas, and then there's spray sunscreen. Spray sunscreen's a bad omen just because it stains the boat. Yeah, and it, takes it gets a lot everywhere. To clean up. It's horrible on fiberglass. But yeah, bananas are, are apparently the white squirrel of the coast. Yes. So I learned that yesterday. So for all you out there that are fishing in the western part of the state, particularly out where white squirrels are actually found, you see a white squirrel, just put your boat on the trailer and go home. I can't believe we didn't talk about this earlier in the podcast. Well, you know. New gear is bad. New gear is bad, yeah, too? Yeah, you get a new musky net, man. You're down for two months. Two months on a new musky net. See, these are things you got to share with the peoples out there. And we, we got a guy, Stratton Hunter. He bought him a new jet boat, and he caught a fish since. <laughs> so, another lesson. Sink the boat. Go back to your you old gotta boat. You got to have weathered gear. Got to have weathered gear. It's got to smell like a muskie. You got to be salty. Got to be salty. There you go. All right. Is it time for questions, Ben? 
We can do some questions. Again, you guys send us questions right regular, and we love them. You know, we're here to help. If we can't answer it, we're going to send them somewhere to the biologist that can. We recently had a bear question. None of us are the bear biologists, so we send them to our bear biologists. Yeah, we deal with fish, but we'll pass it along. But yeah, if you do have questions, you can email us at twobiobiologists at ncwildlife.org. We're happy to to handle your questions or send it to the correct place to answer them. But most recently, I picked a few questions for us to talk about on the show. And Corey, what are we going to do with questions in the future? So questions in the future, if you will include your mailing information and contact information, we will give you stuff out that has the two bald biologists' new logo on it. Yeah, so we got a new logo. We got some stickers made as a kind of a thank you for reaching out to us. We're going to send you a couple decals. Might send you some other things as we get those made. So by all means, put your contact information on there. Yeah. Maybe we can make some fishing baits with our logo on at some point. Wouldn't that be awesome? I like that. Yeah. I get to choose what color they are and what the bait is. It's got to be something I might want to use. Yeah, that's fine. Maybe we'll get one, a, a musky bait. A musky bait with our logo on it. I knew that was coming. Yeah. <laughs> a musky bait's big enough to put our logo on right. it for sure. Yeah. Uh, the coolest thing is we got a fish on it that's got a QR code. I, yeah. Who would have thought? Right? That's right. Technology's gotten crazy. So, Mr. Parker sent me an email, and he's from Murfreesboro, which is my old stopping grounds. No, well, almost my old stopping almost. grounds. The greater Murfreesboro area. And he's asking about the heron population and whether or not we'll ever, like, what happened to it and whether or not we'll ever think it'll come back. Hmm. That's yeah. a good question. It is a good question. It's a question we get asked all the time as the guys who are involved in their conservation. And the heron are doing maybe slightly better than they were. You know, really, the first part of his question is what happened to them. Between the dams and the overfishing and... Yeah, a lot of things. The heron was like a bunny rabbit. Everywhere it went, somebody was trying to eat it, you know? Yeah. And they were being over-harvested in our rivers. They were being over-harvested in our sounds. They were being over-harvested in the ocean. And so everywhere it was going, it was getting heavily exploited. And a population can't take that kind of pressure forever. So we started to see declines. We also had development on our larger rivers that cause declines in the heron population. And it probably was the combination of all that that kind of got us to where where we wound up. We have a moratorium. It's been in place for several years now. And we are starting to see some better catches of heron in these rivers. Now, the real question is, how much better is it and how much better does it need to be? And that's what we've tasked our biologists with is to make those decisions of, okay, we were at a four, we're now at a five, but we need to be at a seven, whatever that means. What does that look know? like? And what does that look like and what is the path forward? And that's really something we're going to be able to think about because what I just said, better than we were but not where we want to be, really isn't specific enough for guys like Mr. Parker. We need to be able to tell him, okay, this is where we're at, and when we get to this point, we think that harvest may be sustainable. And I don't think we're very far away, and maybe we could have like a limited short season or something like that in the future, but I can't promise anything just yet. The jury's still out. We're really crunching the numbers, but it is encouraging that we're starting to see one more fish, and we're also starting to see larger fish. So we're starting to see larger females, which really, it doesn't matter if it's muskies, if it's stripers, if it's herons, you need mamas laying eggs to support the population. So. The part of his questions, I think, was, will we ever get back to what it was? And I think the answer to that is probably not in our lifetimes. I mean, it may eventually get that way, but you think back to herring in the 50s, for example, when your granddad was fishing herring and, and my dad was in the eastern part of the state. I mean, herring went in ditches, you know? You could dip them out with a dip net in the ditches everywhere in eastern North Carolina. There hadn't been herring in ditches in decades. Not like what you're talking about, no. Yeah, and so to get back to that level, I think we're a long ways away. Yeah. And maybe never, Things I don't know. Things are different, you know, and really the way it was is part of the mess we've got ourselves into. So yeah. we may not, even if the population does become robust, it's probably not going to be the way it was. You know, it'll have to be at some new level that's sustainable so we don't get back so we don't go backwards to where we were again. If we open it up, the last thing we want to do is I end up having to close it again. That's right. Know? So 
We got another question from Mr. Marco in Charlotte. He's a big-time fly fisherman. He's just bought a kayak. Kayaks are great way to fish. In fact, we're probably going to do a kayak podcast in the near future. Yeah, and it's up and coming. I mean, well, it's not up and coming. It's here, but there are a lot of people that are getting into fishing from kayaks for sure. It's a great way, and the way kayaks are getting developed, I mean, it's amazing. You can put a lot of money in kayaks. You I've learned that. certainly can. He's been looking at the trout maps, and he's kind of using that as a huge resource. You know, we have a whole trout page on our webpage, but he lives around Charlotte, and he's wondering if there's anything like that to help him find places to fish in Charlotte. I mean, you can still go to our website and go to, so go to ncwildlife.org, go to where to fish. There'll be a map of access areas. It's going to be different. It's not going to be trout water. It's not going to be a lot of stream fishing. There are some stream fishing opportunities in and around the Charlotte area, particularly to kind of the northeast. If you go towards the Yadkin PD Basin, there's quite a few opportunities and access areas there. So if you just look at our access map, you'll find those locations and places you can go, but you can always go out on a reservoir. I would tell him to be, well, be safe everywhere you go, but on a reservoir, you need to be pretty well flagged so that people can see you because there's a lot of boat traffic on a lot of our reservoirs, particularly in the Charlotte area. Another thing is the city parks and the state parks. Absolutely. I mean, some of them have small impoundments. Some of them are on rivers and creeks. And some of these city parks don't even allow motorboats. Like, they would be perfect for kayaks, right. taking kayaks out on. So, I mean, it's just, as an angler, you just got to keep your eyes open and look for spots, study the map, Google Earth. It's a great place to find stuff. And the Where to Fish map has a lot of those municipalities that are not ours. We don't own them. They're owned by a city. So there's a lot of that information out there for sure. So good luck with that. If you need more help, let us know. We'll be happy to find you places to fish. The last one's a pond question. You know, we recently did a podcast about ponds and pond management, and it's gotten a lot of questions of folks that own ponds. And Mr. Biles called me. He was interested in building a pond, and that's the best time to start talking to us is early on so we can get you started on the right note and hopefully keep you there. He'd always heard that 12 foot deep is best for ponds. And he says, is deeper better? What's the best depth for ponds? So let's talk a little bit about pond depth and what you want. And there is a depth that you want to have, but really minimum requirements. Corey, what would you say about, I say about four foot. Yeah, that's at the bare minimum. You could have a pond that's four foot deep and you could have fish in it. Is it going to be the best pond you've ever had? No. No. Conversely, if you had a relatively small pond that was 20 foot deep, well, that becomes problematic too because it stratifies in the summertime. And what we mean by stratifies is there's a layer of cold, unoxygenated water on the bottom. And what can happen is if you get the wrong storm, you can have a turnover, that kind of thing, and the water will mix, and then you could possibly have a fish kill. So Really kind of 8 to 12 foot deep is a safe bet, but it's not a requirement. And it's not necessarily even best because you really have to know your soil types and where the clay is. Because a pond that holds water, a shallow pond that holds water is way yeah. better than a deep <laughs> pond that won't. Yeah, that's Wouldn't right. you say that, Scott? I would agree. So <laughs> his official answer is because fish need water, right? Fish do need water. There we go. See, straight from... Straight from the... From a fish biologist. Yeah, from a fish, fish need water. Fish need water. Right. We've established that on this podcast. If you listened at all, fish need water. Thought I was the first. <laughs> well, we just want to get it from as many sources as we can, is that fish need water. Professional confirmation. Right. Yeah. So there it is. You know, and I would also say not only is like the max depth or whatever important, but like the slope of the banks and all that. I mean, all that kind of stuff. There's a lot that goes into pond building if you're building a pond. A four-to-one slope is really going to help you out with avoiding the problems with aquatic plants, but it also will give you good spawning areas. Yep. So it double duties for you. It gives you a lot of good stuff. But yeah, so really at the end of the day, there is no like, if your pond's not 13.4 foot deep, don't even try. There's not any kind of magic rule like that. What you really want is a variety of depths. You want some deeper water. I'd say maybe at least six to eight foot deep, and then some shallower water. And that way, the fish in the summertime can have some deeper, cooler water. And in the wintertime, they can have some shallower water to kind of sun in and that kind of thing. So it really just, a lot of times, just having a mixture of different depths is way better than having a square hole that's all 13 foot deep. Yep, that's right. 
Well, that was good. That's great. Thank y'all so much for being on the podcast today about Muskie. We've really enjoyed it. And I enjoyed my time yesterday. I can't tell you how much I learned yesterday. I can't tell you how much I learned today talking about it even more and just experiencing something in North Carolina that's completely new for me. It was really, really neat. Yeah. So I want to do it again. I want to see one, maybe even catch one. So I'll be talking to Tim in the future for sure. <laughs> yeah. I'd like to see one. I mean, I've seen one, but I'd like to see but it's one. Real, cha- you know? Yeah. I want to see one chasing my bait. We don't just go out there and knock it out of the park. Yeah. So it's real to have a day where it's, you know, especially yeah. with musky fishing. Yeah. You know? Yeah. If it was easy, everybody'd do it, right? Well, Tim, do you have anything else for us today? I don't believe so. Well, man, I can't thank you enough for for coming out and taking a couple of days to talk with us about it. And I get it. I totally get why this is your thing. So, Scott, you got anything for us? Yeah, I'd just like to add on the website, where to fish, Corey just mentioned, our boating access areas are there, where to gain access to the musky resources we've talked about today, Johns Ridge River, Adger, French Broad, James, Hiawassee, Fontana, and Chioa. All those WRC maintained accesses are on that list. So go there to find out how to access these musky waters. Cool. Thanks, Scott. The club does meet once a month. It's the second Monday of the month. Right now we meet at Big Adventures LLC in Fletcher. Sometimes that changes. The best way to keep track is on the Facebook group, West North Carolina Musky Club. And besides that, use that email that I provided early. I'm sure you guys can provide a link for it later. Yes, we will. Absolutely. Sure. Yeah. Thanks so much, guys. We appreciate it. Thank you all for listening out there, and we'll see you next time. Thank you for listening to the North Carolina Wildlife Resources Commission's podcast, Better Fishing with Two Ball Biologists. For more information, please visit ncwildlife.org or email us at twoballedbiologist at ncwildlife.org.